0: I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. In his new book, The Devil You Know, A Black Manifesto, New York Times columnist Charles Blow urges Black Americans to reverse the great migration of the 20th century. He wants them to move back to the South for one express purpose, to gain political power.
1: There is a window here, and it's closing fast. Like, Black people just have to decide whether they want power or not.
0: Blow isn't just proposing the idea. He's followed his own advice. Last year, he moved from New York City to Atlanta. Here, Blow explained his manifesto, the rationale behind it, and why begging white people to change in the absence of political power is not a position African Americans want to be in right now. Charles Blow of The New York Times Welcome to the podcast. Thanks,
1: Jonathan. Thanks for having me.
0: I have been so looking forward to having this conversation and um, to having you on the podcast since we first talked about what was then the book you were working on, the book you were writing, and now it is out, The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. There's so much in here, and I want to start right at the manifesto and go right to the final words of your book. And you say... The successes of the Great Migration now stand shoulder to shoulder with the suffering that grew out of it. But there is a way to alter this reality. The only thing black people have to do is come home. The South now beckons as the North once did. The promise of real power is made manifest. Seize it. Migrate. Move. So, why, Charles, do you want black people to leave the what you call the destination cities, which are the ones in the north, move back south
1: to claim state power. Um, At the end of the Civil War, three southern states were majority black. Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina. Another three were within four percentage points of being majority black. Every southern state had large percentages of black people in it because up until the Great Migration, 90 percent of all black people lived in the American South. if black people had not moved during the Great Migration, that's a big if, of course, uh, the, it is possible that they could control right now up to 14 Senate seats. Uh, it is possible that they could control as many electoral college votes as California and New York State combined. It is possible that if they voted over the same, uh, you know, if you had the, still had the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, also big ifs. Um, that if, if Black people voted the same way that they vote now, you would have had a re- Republican president for the last 50 years. Last I checked, there's not a single person on the Supreme Court who was appointed over 50 years ago. The entire Supreme Court would look different. The, the state power is enormous in America. There's, there's a reason that this is called the United States of America, it's the federal system. Um, the the Constitution basically divides uh, the power between the Fed and the states. And in fact, it says any uh, power that we have not specifically allocated to the federal government in this document is reserved for the states. And so much of what black people care about, what they march about, what they complain about, what they protest about, whether it be criminal justice or, or um, uh, uh, part of criminal justice being mass incarceration, Those things are primarily state issues, not federal government issues. Even things like uh, healthcare, uh, educational policy, largely controlled by the states. And if you really want to push forward a black agenda, you need people in Congress, particularly in the Senate, who have that as their mission.
0: And you write in terms of you know healthcare being in the state. I think you use the example of Louisiana, and uh, HIV and AIDS, and if the state had expanded Medicaid, and which I think it did actually. talk more about that.
1: The general screwed up so badly that they finally elected a Democrat to be the governor of Louisiana. and then within his first few days of being uh, the governor, he expanded uh, he accepted Obamacare, expanded Medicaid under Obamacare.
0: And then as a result, you also have in there that within a relatively short period of time, the rate of, of I think it's HIV infections, fell dramatically. Yes.
1: The, the, the reason that you have an epidemic of, of HIV infections among Black people in America is not because Black people are more prom- promiscuous than other people, have more reckless sex. In fact, the opposite is true when that when they looked at teenagers and the kind of whether or not who was having the most reckless sex, it wasn't the black kids, it was the white ones. Um, The reason that is spread is because of lack of access to health care. What the science tells us about HIV is that if you take the medication or are in care, get your viral loads down to uh, undetectable levels, you literally cannot pass the virus, right? So you, you have a city like San Francisco that I recorded a couple of years ago a year, I think they had like minimal or almost no new infections, but San Francisco has a festival where people literally have sex in the street. You know what I mean? So, 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 it's, so it's not about promiscuity, it's literally about access to healthcare. So, the, so basically these black people are being allowed to suffer, become infected and even die out of neglect. Because you don't have enough state power where they live to just accept the money. The, the money is there on Obama's Just all you have to do is accept the money and expand your program.
0: And then when it comes to to your point about mass incarceration, you go into the fact that there are more people in the state carceral system than there are in a whole lot more than in the federal system. So one in making this this rather provocative argument telling, pe- telling Black people move move home. Um, you make this really interesting argument about, one, why Black people left the South to begin with. So let's start there. Tell, why did Black people leave the South?
1: The push was twofold. One was um, uh, white terror, right? Uh, When the Civil Civil War was over, uh, the passage of the 14th Amendment made Black people citizens for the first time, the passage of the 15th Amendment made Black, guaranteed Black men, women weren't allowed to vote in time, guaranteed Black men the right to vote, in some of those states, Black people, those Black men far outnumbered the number of registered voters as white men, and this created a tremendous backlash, the rise of the Klan, the rise of the red shirts. But the federal, I mean, one of the only times that the federal government has stepped in on behalf of Black people, like in a forceful, all-out way, was these Ku Klux Klan Act, one of which is being used to suit Donald Trump and Jude Rurali right now, where they sent federal troops into the South. They gave the president the power to do this into the South to protect these black people and guarantee that they had access to the poll and no one would terrorize them or, 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 or intimidate them. Now, it didn't it wasn't it didn't work completely because they still terrorized, but at least there were people there trying to stop it. And then w- when you had a, a contested election, the liberals, as they all, uh, c- often do, compromised the black people's welfare for liberalism, right? So they said, okay, fine, we have this, this election, we're going to tear the country apart, just give us the the presidency and the, the white people in the South said, we well, okay, well, you just withdraw these troops. And where I knew what was going to happen. And that's what happened. But the thing is, it still wasn't enough to push black people out of the South. Black people remained in the South for 60 years, lynching surge terror is everywhere. Their rights to vote is completely restricted. But they still stayed. In fact, most Black people during slavery who were free lived in the South, not in the North. They didn't leave. It wasn't until they got that extra economic push, meaning the, the cotton industry collapsed because of the boll weevil infestation that affected all of the cotton states. And now all of a sudden you have this, this terror ambient in your life. And now add on top of that, I can't even make a living. So now people are very open to the idea of relocation. And at the very same time, the Northern industries need more bodies. Many of the young white men who would have been in those industries are now going off to fight in World War I. They send recruiters down to the South to get people, including black people. So black people had the push of white terror, collapsing economy, and they have the pull of the possibility of more freedom, but also jobs.
0: And so then they head north, and you talk and you talk about the places where they went. These destination cities, which is a great way to put it, and that's the way I'm now thinking of New York, Chicago, Cleveland, uh, Oakland, San Francisco. I mean, as we know, Isabel Wilkerson's fen- phenomenal book, "The Great Migra- Warmth of Other Suns," about the Great Migration. Where she chronicles these three families, one to New York, one to Chicago, one to Los Angeles, um, and you know, spelling out in detail that push and pull that you're talking about. And so now they get to these destination cities. Then what happens?
2: This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to MonarchMoney.com/podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H Money.com/podcast for your free trial. MonarchMoney.com/podcast.
1: Well, in in one way, they do experience some ex- some freedoms that they didn't have. And they do experience a, a labor market that treats them more fairly than the South. But the white North responds, in some ways, in the same way that the white South had responded: uh, hyper uh, segregation, not allowing them to move out of certain spaces, and that segregation was was economic, social, and educational. Um, and there is an increased amount of pressure, violent pressure, including by police on these people, right? And so the it, it is notable that Red Summer comes three years after the Great Migration begins. All these people flow out, there's pressure, there's friction, there's anxiety, and all of these race riots across the country explode.
0: But these are race riots in the North. Right.
1: Largely. There, there, there are some that, that occur in, a, in Southern cities, but it is largely places in the North uh, and Midwest.
0: And so then what I found compelling is that in talking about sort of the, the missed promise of these destination cities, you write about Tamir Rice's mom. This is Cleveland. And if memory serves, you write about how her experience as a child of the destination cities is sort of an an example of just sort of the torment and the pain of why she should move and folks in destination cities should move uh, back south. Can you talk more about that? Right. So she, she
1: this is a personal illustration of a hard life right so she um samaria has a hard life long before her son is killed uh, when she is 12 years old her mother kills her father she is compelled to testify in that trial she, now her mother is also locked up and put away so now she is in foster care She bounces from fa- fa- foster care family, family family including members of her own extended family and she just describes a situation where no one Really knew what caring for a child was like, and, and in fact, she told another reporter uh, there have always been parts of this family that was broken, you know. Uh, and so, and out of that poverty, she gets gets her own issues with law enforcement and violence and drugs, uh, which she talks about openly. Uh, and then, on top of that hard life, comes the killing of her child. Um, and I just discuss it in terms of, you know, uh, as an illustration. Not that they're not hard life stories in the South or anywhere else, or or not not that they're confined to black people even, uh, but that her experience of poverty was so different from mine, and the. She just never felt what it felt like to have a community embrace you. And even when she when her son is killed, she's living in a part of Cleveland that is not the blackest part of Cleveland. In fact, it's a very mixed demographic on paper, it looks like the ideal kind of integration, uh, diverse community that people say that they like, but it is in that community that her son is killed. Right. Not not in the black community. So. You know, I I just try to use her pain as, as to be illustrative of also the idea that a lot of this pain around the killings of young black unarmed people is occurring in these destination cities because of the militarization of their police forces, because of how aggressive those police forces are, particularly as it relates to black bodies. And in fact, when the data, this comes from your newspaper, the Washington Post kind of looks at longitudinally all the data around police killings. And what is remarkable is not that it's concentrated in any given place, but that it is everywhere. Right. That it is everywhere. And, but but many of the highest profile cases have happened in our destination cities.
0: And to your point about um, Tamir Rice's mom and, you know, just the life that she, she lived, in your book, you write about how you lived in all Black spaces and how that played a role in how you viewed yourself, how you viewed your life. You talked about, you write about how um I think it was in college you and your friends were stopped by stopped by the police and even in that interaction at no point did you fear that you could end up dead Um and I want to come I want to put a pin in that particular incident but talk about um because this factors into your wanting people to move back south why it's important was important to you and your upbringing that you were in what you believe are nurturing all black spaces
1: right so you i didn't i didn't grow up thinking oh this is great it's just what it was the way it was the way of the world and and many of the reasons that those spaces were all black or majority black were not because the decision that black people made or decision that white people made they didn't want their kids around us right so they bust them 30, 40 minutes away to go to school. So we'd walk home and pick berries by the side of the street. And we had the ideal life because we walked to our little neighborhood school. But because they didn't want to go, they had to suffer on that bus in the Louisiana heat. For, for 40 minutes there and 40 minutes back. So that wasn't our choice. But what it did, though, is it, prov- it meant that you were never, it, uh, you never experienced the racial battle scars is what the people call them. Racial battle scars of constantly being in conflict in oppositional positioning to whiteness, I was never having to prove myself. Never having to prove why I was in up space. Did I get there on merit? Did I get there on some preference? Not, th- Those were never even considerations. Never thought about it. You know, Toni Morrison once said, when, "When I say people, I mean black people," not because she thought black people were better, just because those are people she knew. That was. Her entire world was black people in in, in the same way that, you know, uh, uh, Emily Dickinson or somebody's writing about white people, this is who she knew. So in my world, people were black people and very few white people ever ventured into our space. And so whenever I walked into a classroom, the, the smartest person in that room was a black person every single time. So I always assumed that any room that I walked into, I could be the smartest person in that room. Never gave it a second thought, that that couldn't be the case. And it wasn't until I am, that I moved out of those, those spaces. And that doesn't come until I'm a full grown professional. That doesn't come until I go move into New York City. Because my first, you know, I went to college at a historical black college. My first job was at the Detroit News in a majority black city with a black mayor. And when I moved to, it's not until I moved to New York and even then I moved into Prospect Heights, which is a majority of the Black neighborhood at the time, that's Shirley Chisholm's old district. You know, uh, so it's not, I move, eventually move into Park Slope because I have kids and, you know, you're looking for the best school, trying to figure that situation out. And this neighborhood seemed to be diverse and had a great school. So I moved into that space and then I realized, oh. This is what minority feels like, (laughs) So, (laughs) so, so, so this is minority. It's how everybody else feels, I guess, because I just never known that life.
0: And you write about the fact that maybe it was in Park Slope where while you were living there or maybe another neighborhood, while you were living in this neighborhood, it started transitioning. And and how um, the old timers and the folks who had always been there were leaving or had were pushed out, and then the gentrifiers start looking at those who stayed behind and you <laughs> as if the, you don't belong. What are you doing here?
1: It's it was shocking. So like you know, I've lived in that uh, apartment for twenty one years. Um, so you know, one by one, all the black and Hispanic neighbors would leave. And you know, oh, I'm leaving, I'm moving, or I'm selling my place, you know. And you didn't think anything above it as as an individual thing. And then you realize like, oh my god, it's all of them. And then, you know, my apartment was on the first floor. And you know, you don't it's kind of a city thing i guess you don't have curtains all the closed all the time you just kind of whatever you're in your house this is the way what is it to hide i'm in my house but you know you just have people like staring like why are you in there like that kind of look and so yeah i mean it was like a lot of like walking by and walking slow and staring in my house so i was like okay let me just close these shutters and it was you know a couple of years ago i remember i knew it was changing but i didn't i didn't i never looked up data i just knew that a lot of the old friends that I had on the block were gone and that I didn't know I knew one other uh there no, were no, two other black families that were on that block and I walked out and they were having uh, a friend was having a uh a, a birthday in the park or like a picnic birthday and so I was going to the park I haven't been in the park in years since my children used to play in the park so I just I'm two blocks away though. So I said, oh, let me just walk into the park. So first they were having a a block party on the block and all the kids were out playing in the sprinklers or whatever. And it just shocked me because I realized there are no black children. Hmm. And having grown up on this block, my children and other, like, it just, I don't know. It just, it took me aback. And I kept thinking like, oh, this kid, I can't, I don't know how to live. You know, I just never been the minority in my net Like, it's just, I can't be the only one. Like, I just, that's, that is a problem for me. And then I walked into the park and I realized the entire park has changed. But we used to call Park Spring Park Brooklyn's backyard because everybody in Brooklyn was there. And I realized I see no black people that I, people who I can visually discern as black or anything. And I just started counting. Mm. I bet I saw ninety people, ninety thousand people that day. I got up to like ninety something, ninety eight people who I thought were not white on my walk, and I thought this is not. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. I don't know. I, either, I don't know what the numbers are. I don't know what's happening. But like, this is not what I signed up for. I want. I signed up for a diverse neighborhood. I don't know what this is.
0: And so we're going to put a pin in that. But before, um, keep on your experience with the police when you were in college and how, you know, at no point did you fear for your life. Fast forward, your son is at Yale living his life, doing his thing. Um, Talk about the experience of what happened to him.
1: Right, so 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 yes, a cop had pulled a gun on me. And we were we, me and my friends were in a neighboring town that was was majority white, and so because we were out of our bubble, but I, you know this craziness happens, and but even bec- but because I had never known up close police officers who weren't black, I never there never been any kind of conversation with me about police officers and in your life safety mm-hmm. why would there be the you know the guy in my, i don't i live in a tiny home hometown so there was like one police officer he's a kind old black man i don't think he ever had a gun he's i don't know if he he wouldn't do anything if the place was burning down. he was just gentle as as all could be and when he retired or whatever he was replaced by my cousin by marriage. So like I, my concept of policing is gentle and family and nurturing. And then I go to college and the police on campus and in town, many of them know our family because I'm like 20 minutes from my hometown and their way of policing is very gentle. Like you're doing something wrong to say, hey, Charles, stop that. That's what they say. There's no like tickets and oppression and arrest. Like there's none of that uh and so in that moment when i'm experiencing the police it just doesn't people you know he's asked he's being a kind of aggressive we understand that and we understand it not why he's doing it but that's what's happening and he asked for the license registration and i'm on sitting in a passenger seat so i open the thing up and one of these switchblade combs that you used to get at the county fair so that thing you know funsy kind of thing so it rolls out onto the thing and the guy kind of i don't know he responds in some sort of way and i still it it doesn't even dawn on me that danger could be part of the equation and so i look at it i realize what it is and so i'm like this is funny so i click the switchblade so that the cone pops out you don't write this in the book charles that yeah, but i'm just like because my brain is like my like it's funny and then his gun comes out and like, I realized that, oh, okay. He doesn't get it, like, you know, <laughs> but, but oh my my, I didn't get it. Like the idea that the police were a dangerous force mm-hmm. was not part of my life because all of my police officers have been community officers, who also black, who always treated me as a human being and we respect and were not trying to harm me. And so, but when my son encounters a police officer, who happens to be black as well, uh, And the immediate aggression of interacting with him, he's on a college campus, he goes to that college, he's at Yale, he works in the library, he's leaving the library, he's checking out equipment and returning it because he's working on a project. Uh, He also, because he has kind of not had a lot of interaction with police, he doesn't even know, like, why, why would he be talking to me? Like, what is? That's I'm a, coming from the library. It doesn't register with him. You know, my son's the most conservative kid on the planet. Like, he's coming from a library on a Saturday night. I would never have been coming from a library on a Saturday night. But that's my son. Like, he doesn't do. He doesn't go out. He does his work. And so for him, and like, so it, it, you know, but he he has the black man muscle memory. As soon as the gun comes out, he his hands reflexively go up, he falls to his knees. It is, it is, some, it is in the blood of us. It is coated into the blood of like how to survive this sort of aggression. And when he's recounting this to me, I am now completely wracked with, I'm, I'm furious, but also wracked with guilt because and somehow in my head, Getting him out into the northern spaces, into you know uh, protected elite spaces, was going to help. You know that's some of that respectability politics stuff crap happening in my head. That there's some way that you can graduate yourself out of it, right? That you can be in the right space doing the right thing, and it won't happen to your kids. No, it's not true. When they pull a gun, you don't get to pull a resume and say, "Oh, you know, no no, look at look, I got this is my ACTs and this is what I'm in class." you don't get to do that. You you just you look like the victim. You like the, the perpetrator, the suspect. And that's what they said to my son. He looked like the suspect. So, it, you know, it was just it just crystallized for me that there was no safe space for us. You can't uh there's no safe activity. And we have to create spaces that have the spirit of the spaces that I grew up in, where you are kind of in control of the space. You hire people who have empathy for your position and for your humanity because they share it. And that, that mitigates against, doesn't eliminate the possibility of police misconduct, but it mitigates against it.
0: And so then... You start thinking more seriously about this manifesto and this reverse migration after you go down and visit. I think you said this is a a friend of yours, like your longest friend. She's uh, stayed down south. And you go down and you visit with her and she's building her dream home. It's not even built. And she's showing this is going to go here and this is going to go there. Why did that moment uh, sit with you or hit you so hard?
1: Well, I think that that they were uh, cumulative moments. And that was one of them. Uh, Part of, you know, she drives me into this neighborhood, a sub uh, development, housing development, subdivision thing. It's way out, (laughs) like it's way out. Uh, And we finally get there and, you know, they've done a thing, you know, they have uh, a full waterfall at the entrance. And like, there's a lot of uh, landscaping and and a guarded gate and the whole thing. And so we go in and I'm like, she says, yeah, it's like 80% black. And like, these are really nice homes. It's a very big development. And, you know, we're kind of driving to this spot, and you just see kids shooting hoops and riding their bicycles. And and what's striking to me about it is what I had seen in every other time I visited like twice a year since we graduated from college. Every neighborhood you ever have been in is kind of the same thing. Black prosperity, and safety is normal these kids have no clue what it would mean to be unsafe in that neighborhood you know they they run that neighborhood like there's a little patrol but they all wave this is the guy they know mm-hmm. you know and so that kind of prosperity and safety even though a suburban living is not my dream for my friend who grew up in a trailer one bedroom with her father and her brother with intermittent water availability in the middle of nowhere in arkansas that's incredible that's incredible and it's the same level of poverty or probably worse than what samaria rice had uh endured but that was the difference between living in a space that saw you and nurtured you and propelled you and even when you didn't have you weren't equipped she wasn't really equipped when she came to college and they said we'll meet you where you are because she went to a black school we meet you where you are and we'll get you equipped and now she's a regional director of a bank you know those stories are not unusual in Atlanta in the uh, Maryland suburbs right outside of D.C., where which have some of the wealthiest Black communities in America. This are just not unusual.
0: And so when you say to Black people, move back south, it's not just any anywhere. What are the specific states?
1: I identify nine states, all 25% already 25% Black or more, places where the trajectory could lean in your favor to making it... Uh, Majority Black are getting very close to it, they are states that run along I-20 and up I-95 so that is Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, Virginia. Uh, Maryland and Delaware, so the Census Bureau includes all the way up to Delaware, southern states, a lot of people don't consider Delaware to be a southern state, Census Bureau does, always has, so I use the Census Bureau designation and also Delaware is the eighth blackest state in America so why not?
0: <laughs> and in that is um, Washington D.C. is part of your calculus because I was sitting there like Charles, it I'm is not to move south. Wait, yes, it is. It's not. It's not. It's, uh, it's, it's. I read it there in your book.
1: The reason being, D.C. does not have senators, and I believe uh, that part of the the state power is having representatives in the Senate. Um, okay. So that makes and so sense. and it, but but but. But the way I see it, if you get um, senators or control in those other states, you're more likely to get D.C. statehood. Mm -hmm. Because right now it just wouldn't get through the Senate.
0: And so then one of the things you write about is how you you don't buy into this whole demographics is destiny thing and how, you know, just by demographics, everything will be all right. Talk a a little bit more about that. And then I got another thing
1: right because what i'm what i'm saying that you have to fight is two ends of the same stick on the one end is white supremacy the other end is anti-blackness and the problem uh with uh just looking at the browning of america as uh a remedy to white supremacy and anti-blackness in particular is that uh uh that is not that that these Ethnic groups racial groups do not have completely overlapping shared philosophies beliefs and policy initi- uh, policy objectives, you know, in. Uh, 2016. Nearly a third of all Asians and Hispanics in America voted for Donald Trump, this was after his racism was widely on dis- on display, including. um uh Muslim bans and calling Mexicans rapists and killers in 2020 in immigrant neighborhoods there was a surge according to the New York Times analysis of in for Trump support in those immigrant neighborhoods and the reason that you know one of the this very complex matrix of reasons here but one thing you have to remember in in the context of black empowerment and liberation is that it is hard to look at any place society around the world a modern society where there's a difference in the way people appear there are darker people and lighter people and the darker people are not assigned to the lower caste so anti-blackness or anti-darkness is a world problem and when you get immigration it doesn't stay where the immigrants are they bring part of that culture with them into a space into a country where whiteness is aspirational in some Uh, countries in the Caribbean and in South America, whiteness is defined very differently than here. So a lot of people in the country from which they migrate, they were white in that country, right? And here all of a sudden they're Hispanic and immigrants, but they aspire to return to the designation for which they had always identified. So it's it's just as not as neat as all brownness is interested in Black liberation.
0: Sorry, I'm writing this down. (laughs) I need you to address one of the knocks um, on your book, and it has to do with you go in on Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, but you don't name names when it comes to... um, contemporaries. For instance, you write, instead of pursuing truly revolutionary change, too much Black energy, both activist and intellectual, has been too obsessed with finding ever newer phrasings to articulate an old phenomenon, and often doing so in service of explaining to white liberals what Black people already know as a matter of lived experience. And I fear that Black activism is creeping toward its own form of elitism, a way of building strata and hierarchy of the supposedly woke over the supposedly asleep. And you go on later to talk about how there are some writers who, when, they, when they're when they doing all these things, they're doing it for the benefit of trying to, um, doing it for the white gaze, whether it is for G-A-Z-E, um, whether doing it for the academy or doing it for... Um to, to be the anointed one by white liberals, and I have to tell you, I read that and I was like, mm mm-hmm, I uh, amen, but who are you talking about? Who are you talking about?
1: I think it's broadly applicable. I mean, um the, I mean listen, it's there is an economy built around uh, the explanation of racism, reframing it, saying it in a different way, adding a different context uh and that economy is not i don't believe primarily fueled by black people right it, uh i don't think all those books are being bought by black people i think that that is largely you know white people anointed and then the white academy includes it and in the white schools then say but it, it's must read and compulsory so uh and and you know more power to you. Listen, there's some beautiful recitations of what racism is and how it's you know, and new explanations and new context provided. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. But you know, turning poetry into pain or pain into poetry, it's just not what I wanted to be part of. Like I I get that it's not about me. I know you're not writing to me because I already I already know what this is. Because you so you couldn't be explaining it to me. So. Uh, I wanted to write this book in order to provide an actual solution a path and a plan and not be part of that in that race industry that you know because the concept is so simple that we we make it complex in order to the industry requires it to be complex because as simple as this race is a construct if you remove the oppressive elements of society that suppress certain races and benefit others then people will behave as people behave you'll have some victors and some losers you'll have some excellent people and some scoundrels all of that will happen because that was part of the human condition just see everybody as a human being equally and give them equal opportunities it's so simple like when every time we step in and try to make it the complexity, explain race, have difficult conversation. What is difficult about this conversation?
0: (laughs) No, and and when you put it like that, that's why I laugh because you're you're right. All right, Charles. So are you going to follow The Devil You Know up with another book down the road, either checking in on the manifesto or writing another not an not another exhortation but sort of a, a part 2
1: when you're finished writing a book you came and think about writing another book so <laughs> i don't know if that's the case uh whatever feels right but i will say this you know there you know there's a window here and it's closing fast like Black people just have to decide whether they want power or not. Like, it, it is that simple. And not beg for power. Every time you, you, you can say it feels powerful to protest, but if you had the power to make the change you want, you wouldn't need to protest. The, re- the v- implicit in the very notion of protesting is that you are appealing, threatening, cajoling, guilting the people with the power to change policy. It means you don't have the power to do it yourself. So, and, and and there's coming a moment where in the next, you know, by 2055, six, six seven of the southeastern states will be majority Hispanic, not majority brown, majority minority, majority Hispanic. They can advocate for whatever policies they want, they can send whatever delegations to the Congress they want, and they should. Uh, at that point, they will there'll be almost twice as many Hispanics in America as black people. At that point, Asians will then outnumber Black people in America. Black people in, in about uh, 50, 60 years would have gone from the first minority in the country in terms of numbers to the third. Everybody has policy objectives. Think about how they're going to uh, weigh the policy objectives of the third minority group. Uh, you hawaii will continue to be majority asian south pacific islander oregon washington down into the rockies will continue to be majority white everything east of that will be some mix of majority white majority minority black people where where is your state power going to be you just have to make a decision like i i keep saying i'm not twisting anybody's arm i'm just giving you a way to do it but you have to make a decision about whether or not you even want it Right now, there, I think there are seven states where the percentage white percentage of the population of those states is 90-plus percent. That means they control an eighth of all the senators in the US Senate, right? But if you get the entire population of all those seven states put together, they are one-fourth the population of the Black people in this country. Yeah, black people, you don't for you don't control an eighth of the Senate. The the population those seven states put together is about three percent of the American population, and they control eight percent of the Congress of, of the Senators uh, uh, and eighth of the Senators. It was just like fifty percent, an eighth of the Senators. Mm-hmm. You have to figure out: Do you want that kind of power or not? You don't have to have it because you don't have it now. You don't have to have it, but you can't then return to the street and say the system has to change. Because at that point, you're just begging white people to change. You're begging white people to see you as human, mostly white men, mostly wealthy white men. This happens in states there primarily happens in states there right now four uh, governors in America that are not white, none of them are black. In the, in the state houses across the country, 50% of the people in those state houses are white men. 30% are white women. 15% are basically the rest of us. Do you want power or not?
0: Charles, in the few seconds we have left, not few seconds, we might have a couple of minutes. You know how the Zoom is. Um, one, uh, I want to congratulate you, but also curse you out. Congratulate you on your new show on the Black News Channel, 10 p.m. prime time uh, show Monday through Friday starting in March 2021. That's the congratulations. I'm gonna curse you out because your executive producer went to you from me,
1: James Home. When they told me that James was in the running, I said, the guy
0: give me." <laughs> <laughs> and you know, look, Charles, I'm not, ma- I'm not mad at you because. Um, J- James, um, was the executive producer for Ed Schultz, blew him up. Uh, James was the executive producer for Joy Reed. And then she blew up in that seven o'clock. And so, and then he was my executive producer. I finally got a show and now he leaves. And what that tells me is that Charles Blow, who is already a star and already famous, is going to blow up even more. Oh, and did y'all know he's got an opera? So Charles's first book, um, Fire Shut Up in My Bones from 2014, a spectacularly beautifully written memoir. And if you want to know where the passion comes from in Charles, read that book. But then it was Terrence Blanchard turned it into an opera and it premiered at the St. Louis opera in 2019 was the debut, and then it's supposed to debut at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City this year.
1: Just fingers crossed, get away, COVID, go away, <laughs> pandemic.
0: <laughs> well, look, all I know is, Charles, when it is on, I want to be there for the debut at the Met.
1: First opera by, the Black, by a Black composer in the entire history of the Met. Wow. And I believe second... Opera with an all black cast, first being Porgy and Bess.
0: What'd I tell you? The man's a star. Charles Blow, columnist for the New York Times, author of Fire Shut Up in My Bones from 2014, author of The Devil You Know from 2021. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm sorry, an anchor. At Black News Channel. channel? You're
1: never going to let me live that down. No, look,
0: I am happy for you. I really am happy for you. Charles, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to k Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.